Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. We're a network that exists to provide relationships and resources to amplify a Jesus-centered movement, and we seek to embody a more hopeful vision of following Jesus in our cultural moment. Join us as we learn from those who are looking to live out a greater Jesus centricity in their areas of leadership and mission. If you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome. Check us out on social media or at JesusCollective.com for ways you can connect to this growing movement. Okay, let's get into today's podcast. Well, welcome everyone to the Jesus Collective Podcast. To all our viewing audience out there, we are so excited you're joining us today for our conversation with David Fitch on Reckoning with Power. And I am so excited for this conversation. I I believe I'm going to learn a lot. I believe we're going to learn a lot together. And it's going to be something that I think will be provoking, challenging, and raise a lot of curiosity for all of us. Joining me this week to uh, help me have a conversation with David is my good friend, Christy Penner-Warden. Christy, welcome to the podcast for your first ever co-hosting debut. It's amazing. Welcome here. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Um, For those of you who I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, uh, I am the chief mission officer with a ministry called uh, Raise Up Faith. If you're a one-story user, if you've learned about one-story kids' curriculum through Jesus Collective in the past, One Story has joined the playground that is Raise Up Faith. It's an online platform with over 13,000 digital assets to help you equip and inspire families, kids, youth. And I get to uh, be, well, I'm basically the Mary Poppins of that organization. So I get to fly around and share about Jesus, share about how to share about Jesus, um, and equip adults to do that really well. So it's my pleasure to be with you. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. That's so amazing, Christy. For those that don't kind of know you that well, would you describe yourself like a Mary Poppins? Would that be a good description for you? Yeah, I mean, that feels risky uh, okay. just because okay. she had her moments, but it's probably not wrong. Uh, I, it, you know, for fun, besides my job, I'm a speaker and an author as well, uh, working on my first book right now, which feels like the scariest thing I've ever done. Uh, mm. But... Um, yeah, I think there's something about Mary Poppins, uh, the way she would drop in to a situation, try to um, add something to it and leave something behind, and then be swept out and do it again. And so I often uh, think of myself as, well, I am a pastor, I'm a credentialed pastor, but I think about the opportunity of sharing what God has deposited into me, but I don't have the privilege of walking in discipleship with communities. So there's like this careful balance of, I can share with you what I know, but I my opinion is probably not the right place to start because we don't get to walk that out relationally. So there's this tension that I walk constantly in my job of like, the Lord has something to say, and I believe Jesus has equipped me to say it, but I'm just going to hop on a plane in about two hours, so good luck and <laughs> all the best. So um, it's just one of those tensions uh, that I get to steward, but it also keeps me really humble and honest about uh, what we are here to talk about and what we're not here to talk about. Well, Chrissy, I I just so appreciate you. Thanks for saying yes to join the podcast today. And 
yeah, we go we go back a couple of years, and you've been such a blessing to our church community. And I just want to express that before we move on. So uh, today we are interviewing the prestigious David Fitch, ladies and gentlemen. David Fitch is the B. R. Linder Chair of Evangelical Theology at Northern Seminary. He's also the founding pastor of Life on the Vine Christian Community, a missional church in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. He's authored books like The Church of Us Versus Them, Faithful Presence, and today we are talking about his latest book, Reckoning with Power. Welcome to the podcast, David Fitch. Hey, everybody. It's uh, a delight, a pleasure, an honor. I'm really enjoying the banter between you two, by the way. Uh, You got that unique Canadian, gracious, but cutting banter. (laughs) <laughs> you know all about that, David. David, aren't you a fellow Canadian? No, I am actually uh, technically not. My my parents moved from Owen Sound, Ontario, two months before I was born uh, to Chicago. And then they moved back to Hamilton, Ontario, probably the greatest, most beautiful city, definitely the most beautiful city in all of Canada. So anyways, I, I, I ended up being an American citizen <clears throat> for, the, for that reason. I'm sure people say that about Hamilton all the time. It's hey, hey, it's, it's already an insight. Dude, we're getting off on the wrong foot if you're going to start dissing <laughs> my Hamilton. <laughs> love it, love it. So, mm-hmm. David, um, you're going to be giving us a bit of a presentation about this concept of power, and you're also going to be doing this in the context of our Unite Conference coming up at the end of April in. Woodland Hills, Minnesota there. Um, yes. And so we'll be exploring this more in depth, but you're going to sketch kind of some of what you're seeing, the dynamics of power, what it means for the church to wrestle this concept. And so I'm just going to turn it over to you for the next 15 minutes. And we'd love to hear kind of the insights that you're, you're bringing through your research, your study, and through your brand new book that's coming out in January, I believe. January, yes. Reckoning with Power. What? Why the Church Fails When It's on the Wrong Side of Power is the title of the book. You know, I've been thinking about this issue of power for, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, 30, maybe longer than probably you two have been alive. Uh, uh, it's just uh, the problem of power uh, is so fraught with, with uh, issues and nuances, but it's become so evident uh, the abuse of power, uh, the wrong use of power, the uh, attempting to be God in the use of my power and the insulating of myself and then giving me permission to use power in abusive ways. It's everywhere and shockingly maybe most prevalent in the church. And I think there's reasons for that. So I don't know, in about 20 minutes, I'll give you a, a little brief introduction, but I really tried to cover the, and give a good introduction to uh, the problem of power in this book. I start out with this little story about uh, going into a church. This is a fictional, actually, it's not quite fictional because it's taken from pieces of actual uh, uh, me actually being in church services like this. But, you know, you go into a Sunday morning church service and you enter the sanctuary and you're approached by a person that's called a greeter. And the greeter hands you a clipboard with with a very nice smile. I, I can I say it seemed a little fake to me, this the smile. 
Good to see you this morning. Anyways, uh, and and it asks the the greeter asks if you're comfortable giving the church your personal information on a uh, on a on a sheet that they give you. It seems a bit intrusive, frankly. Um, you feel a bit uncomfortable, but you proceed. No one's put a gun to your head to come to this church. And so, uh, by the way, the greeter points you. This is true now. The greeter points you to a pledge on the clipboard that asks you to attend at least four Sunday morning services before you make a decision on whether this is going to be your church. Okay, so, so you know, already they're making assumptions about you, already, and you haven't even, like, sat down, and they're making assumptions. And after some singing and some worship, the pastor gets up there, and he's kind of like a... Um, um, a celebrity guy, and and he shows a video. Uh, that video, um, fortune favors the brave, and he starts preaching to you about how we need courage to reach out to the lost, and he starts saying things like, "We're going to engage the down and outers," and already, already, there's hints of certain power assumptions power relationships going on there power and then and then he says something like um he invites the audience you need to seek courage for your lives to live this kind of life and he invites you to come forward to be prayed for by the way i got to say i don't know if i i don't know if i unilaterally want to say i'm against any of these things like i i actually like a good altar call frankly can I say that? Okay. But I just want us to point out that there's there's power assumptions going on here. There's pressure being applied. If you do go forward at that altar call, you, you have now assumed certain power relations, almost becoming initiated into who has authority and who doesn't in the church. And what I want to just point out by this brief story is <clears throat> there are power relations going on in every social context we enter. And I'm talking now about the workplace that you maybe go to to work. If you're on a work crew on the streets and sanitation of Chicago, there's power assumptions. If you go to the bank, if you go to the hospital, oh yeah, I'm the patient, you're the doctor, there's an authority relationship. If you go to the town hall ordinance committee, Everything has power assumptions. And what I want us to ask is, you know, how does power work? How do we navigate that power? And how do we do it? How does that power relationship change when we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, where Jesus is Lord, not only of my life, but of the world? That's the question. And so uh, if I can, for, for those of you who are not listening via video, I'm going to try to just use these slides to organize my thoughts. Okay, so the first thing I'd like to just say to everybody or ask, first question I'd like to ask is what is power? And um, <clears throat> the most simplest version of that comes from this guy named Max Weber, uh, uh, a sociologist from the previous century, and he describes power as the probability that one actor 
within a social relationship will be in a position to carry out his or her own will despite resistance. And so that's a very famous definition of power. I think it's ubiquitous in our culture. Um, Robert Dahl, another theorist, sociologist on power, uh, a little later, like, like 50 years ago, said, A has power over B to the extent that he can get B to do something that B would not otherwise do. So um, to begin our discussion on power, the basic core definition of power that operates in our culture, in our society, in our sociology is power over. A, by virtue of influence and power, has the ability to tell B or get B to do what A wants him or her to do. Power over. But it's not that simple. Like no one was holding a gun over my head to get me to go to that church service and there were various layers of power within the discourses that I was being lured or or even and personally willing to enter into uh, out of my own will, out of my own consent. Uh, when I go to the doctor, folks, uh, usually it's because, well, actually, when you get to be my age, they make you go for no reason at all, uh, just to get a checkup, but often, by the way, and I hate it. But uh, normally we go because something's wrong. I want a diagnosis and I want the doctor to give me his expert opinion. I willingly do this, although frankly, less so in the last five or 10 years, because we're realizing there's all sorts of power influences. Why do you want me to get take that drug? Why do you want me to do this? What And, and, and so what Michel Foucault, uh, critical race theory, other uh, discourses help us understand is that there's certain power assumptions woven in to the discourses that we are becoming part of. And we're not even aware of it. Do we realize when we go to a therapist, we are entering into a power discourse? Do we realize when I go work at Northern Seminary, there's 125-year-old uh, discourse of power where we have a board of trustees, we have this, we have that. Uh, okay, and so we no, do not even know necessarily. And so we have to, and so lately in the last five, 10 years, uh, me too, uh, has helped us understand the gender issues uh, assumed within patriarchy that are throughout the discourses of our society. I can't go into any more depth on all of this because I could do it for about 10 years, but I want to rush to the end here. Power with is distinctive from power over and the various forms of manifestation of power over that lie within the discourses. It says when we come into relation with somebody in mutuality, that there is a certain power released between people. And you'll see this in various forms of discourse now, the deconstruction of power and the looking for another way. The power of nonviolence is what... Um, is what MLK called it. And what I want to just uh, quickly rush to here is an idea that I've come to be, uh, it's become central to the way I've come to understand power. And it's the, it's what I'm arguing for in this book, Reckoning with Power. And that is, even when we have a concept of power with, 
a power that's emerging out of mutuality. It can easily become just another form of manipulated power over, unless there is another kind of power at work in the midst. And that is what I think Jesus uh, offers the world, is another form of power that when two or three gather in his name, we can come into his presence and become a form of mutuality and allow a different power to become manifest. Otherwise, I think servant leadership, which was an attempt at power with, soon became a way for capitalist corporations to use it to make more money. I'm telling you, I did, in the book, I outline this. Even the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, uh, if you've seen the movie Selma, if you've seen other movies uh, that document all that went on in the 60s in the civil rights movement, uh, th they became tired, worn out, and they said, this isn't working fast enough in the Black Power movement, uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael, uh, Black Panther, etc. By the way, I've done a lot of study with this, and I'm, I could talk about it if you have any questions. Uh, but but it, there was a usurping of the power with that became uh, a more pragmatic way of using black power to achieve ends and purposes. Without Jesus, power with becomes another form of power over. And so instead, we need to understand that Jesus, without Jesus, there can be no true power with. And I call it in this uh, book, Underpower. Jesus invites us to come under his lordship and in so doing a way of being with the power of his presence to heal, to convict, to restore, to forgive, to reconcile, to draw people to his common purposes is a power that is unleashed in and through Jesus' presence among us. And so, um, um, what I'm arguing here is, and I'm not arguing, I'm trying to be with you all, so, I'm, so please don't assume I'm trying to impose this on anybody. Uh, but what I want to say that the scripture here um, really help, wants us to distinguish between the two powers. There are re There's not one power, there's two. Uh, and I go through great lengths in a chapter to show how... Um, really, in Genesis chapter 1, God's presence was with his people, but there was an act of usurping God in an attempt to become God in the sin of eating of the fruit of good, the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, because they could no longer be with God, they were escorted out of the garden, and Gen Genesis chapter 6, violence breaks out into the world. And so instead of there being one power, there's now two. There's godly power. God's power with and in and among through his presence and the power of the world, which is coercive, coercive and violent. And Jesus says, frankly, when in Mark chapter 10 and other parallel passages, that when the disciples are getting ready for the kingdom to take place, a kingdom which they had confused with the Roman kingdom, um, they were getting ready to assume worldly power. They're getting ready to go to Jerusalem. They assumed the kingdom was going to take place. Jesus was going to take his rightful place as king. And, and they said, hey, who's going to get the power 
the right hand or the left hand? Who's going to get to tell people what to do? And they're assuming power over. And Jesus says, you know how the Gentiles lord it over you. You know how the benefactors use money to achieve power over you. It shall not be so among you. And then he he outlines how to become a servant, how to serve one another. He he in in the uh, scene uh, around the table, he he washes the disciples' feet, and Peter is horrified and says, "How can this be? We expected you to be our king." He says, "This is what a king looks like," and he talks about a a new kind. A power. So we need to distinguish between the two powers. And I go through the entire scriptures kind of summarizing how that happens again and again. But uh, but the distinct but the but the distinction I want everybody to make. And by the way, working this out is kind of complicated. It's why I had to write a book about it. It's why I'm not going to be able to completely uh figure this out with you in 25 minutes. Um, but nonetheless, we can get a start. Uh, but I'm convinced that Scripture's clear, that Jesus is clear. There's two different kinds of power. There's power over, which is worldly power. There's godly power, which is always relational, always mutuality with. There's worldly power that wants to act on behalf of God. There's godly power that wants to participate and cooperate with God. There's there's a worldly power that for for worldly power discerning is control. I'm going to discern so I can control. In godly power, it's submission to Him together and discerning together. In worldly power, it's doing something in my own effort. In with godly power, I'm doing it in and by Your power. Your presence, Lord, in this place. Different, totally different thing. In in worldly power, there's asymmetric influence, position. In godly power, it's interrelationality, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In worldly power, it's over. And, and with godly power, it is with. And I just think fundamentally, this changes the way we do power. Um, I've got a, just a few more slides, and then I'm going to turn it back to our hosts. But um, when we are in the world, um, I believe it's time to reject worldly power in all things. Uh, when we are in leadership, when we are in evangelism, this affects how we do evangelism. We no longer try to coerce people into evangelism. I mean, believe it or not, this this might have worked 50 years ago. People thought it worked. I'm going to coerce you. I'm going to convince you're going to hell. I'm I'm going to convince you that you disobeyed one of the Ten Commandments once when you were seven. And now I'm going to convince you to go to hell, and I'm going to coerce you into the kingdom. Okay, all I'm saying is the power of the work of the presence of God in evangelism changes the way we engage the world. Um, it changes the way we do discipleship. I believe it changes fundamentally the way we engage in sexuality debates. If you can call them debates, I call them discernments. I believe it changes the way we do 
justice in the world. We enter in and participate with God. We don't make people into projects, which is the way of worldly power. So I'm going to end. Well, let me see if I can just tie this up by saying a few things about what we do with leadership in the church. If I can find um, a good slide here. Uh, I'm not good at Okay, uh, my co-host, get ready because I'm going to hand it back to you. But here's here's a few tips on how the church can practice the power, the presence of Jesus, what I call in the book under power. First of all, mutual submission becomes a, a practice, a daily practice of discernment in our lives, in all the decisions we make as a church. We do them mutually in mutual submission. That's going to be a big ask because we're so used to working out of Christendom power over where the expert makes the call. I want to suggest we've got to emphasize the plurality of the gifts of the Holy Spirit around tables, in discipleship, uh, and in every other function of the church. It's not one gift over the others. There are some who chronologically come first, like apostleship, but no gift is over one another. It's out of 1 Corinthians 12, we learn we're all dependent in mutuality in our gifts. And it's by those, by, by all the gifts having their voice that um, the power of the Holy Spirit is released among us. Uh, a parousia is a kind of a, um, a rhetorical word out of Greek. It talks about how we speak truth, but don't do it over people. We do it with people out of sincerity and love, out of our own presence with people. If that's too complicated, uh, let's move on. Don't spend a lot of time, but I think it's so powerful the way we go about speaking truth in the world and in people's lives. Uh, I talk about presence with tables. I talk about presence in the streets. When we demonstrate, we become physically present to the presence of Jesus at work in demonstrations. And then things happen. Things happen. Encountering injustice, we must make space for more than just getting some laws done. God wants to heal the world over against the injustices that are, are in and around our contexts. And, and so, those are just a few ideas about practicing under power. I want to suggest uh, that there are some missteps that once again blur worldly power with godly power. I, by the way, I'm a big advocate of women in ministry with men. Okay. But what I don't want technically, historically, substantively, men in the past have exercised power over in the structures of Christendom church. I know I'm getting into some trouble here, but hey, uh, I've got to be, I've got to be concise. We as men, uh, want to invite women into power on our terms. I suggest women are disruptor of worldly power and that we can now be men and women leading churches in mutuality before a congregation. I don't want women to not be women and men not to be men. And then we just, we just blur into this power over that we have been in for so long in Christendom. Uh, multi-ethnic church. I think multi-ethnic church disrupts 
the way homogenous majority power works in churches. I want to encourage, and I, and I go into insights on how multi-ethnic church from the bottom up changes the witness and power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in church. Uh, I already talked about discipleship, already said a few words about sexuality, evangelism, I said a few words. In all these ways, we tend to take over and do power over moves to cure or solve the problems instead of making space for the power and presence of Jesus to do his work. I've already talked about justice. House churches, I'm a big advocate for. The the local table and the presence of Jesus at the table just does things to our lives in terms of discipleship, healing, and restoration. All right, so that's a little taste, my friends. Uh, I hope it's a little bit of an introduction and it's enough to get... uh, uh, a conversation going. Well, thank you so much, David, for sharing. Uh, you mentioned you're about to get into a little trouble here. I want to just oh, invite yeah. you. I want to invite you that this is a place for good trouble. We like, <laughs> we like to have some good conversations here. In the words um, of the famous John Lewis, by the way, who worked on the ground for civil rights, not from the top down, but on the ground, little three, four person table fellowships in Woolworths disrupted Jim Crow in the 1960s. So good. So Chrissy and I were chatting behind the scenes and uh, we're going to ask you a ton of questions kind of as a follow up and, and dive into this, but we felt like the first important kind of question that we could enter into is actually to gauge a story in the gospels. We want to take you to Luke chapter 19, uh, the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, you might know it as Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. You in your book describe that there's a power dynamic happening in that relationship. And I'm curious if as a way to like kind of illustrate some of the concepts you've uh, shared with us, could you walk us through that story and tell us how you see a power under a Jesus-shaped power working in that. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a remarkable display of the way Jesus goes about uh, by his presence disarming worldly power. Uh, but I got to say, it's like one of about a million that are in the New Testament. <laughs> uh, he, he, of course, uh, Zacchaeus uh, is a tax collector. Zacchaeus has probably one of the more prominent positions of worldly power for that time. He is able to tell you that if you don't give him certain amount of money, you're going to end up in jail, uh, an immense amount of worldly power. And uh, he is resented for it because it's unjust. And and so Jesus was a respected rabbi. I mean, by, by large crowds of people, maybe not by the Pharisees at the time, or at least all the time. Uh, and, and instead of him using any of his worldly power, he goes up to him, engages him in that tree, and invites him over to his house, Zacchaeus's house, around a table as a guest. Uh, this, is a, this is a total capitulation of worldly power. He is so, um, it is so offensive to the Pharisees that uh, they they are um, shocked by it, they are disgusted by it, that a, a holy man would go and be uh, 
a guest at the table of this tax collector. And so we know what happened. So all, all this to illustrate, it is just the way G- sitting around a table in and in, in Rita Finger, R-E-T-A, Rita Haldeman Finger, Common Meals in the New Testament. She wrote this great, this is like 20 years ago. She she wrote this study and showed how the table becomes uh the place of mutuality where worldly power is is uh, dismantled where we when you sit around a table you are equal to everybody else around that table you know when you're eating um, something uh uh and you're you're shoving food into your mouth in front of somebody else it, you you can't like posture yourself it's not a it's hard to posture yourself over somebody instead you are with somebody eating with somebody and that's what jesus did and out of that space of course we know what happened uh salvation came to zacchaeus and his household and he uh made things right not only according to the law uh and actually the jewish law of how you um uh compensate someone you stolen money but he did it four times over he did it out of the fullness of the breaking out of the kingdom which defies the worldly laws we're going to make this right by you giving back 100 what you stole plus 10 he did it many times over and so this whole story is an overthrow of the way worldly power worldly rules work and it makes space for the kingdom. And it doesn't happen by Jesus imposing himself over somebody. It happens by him coming and being among in mutuality where he actually becomes a guest and puts himself beneath somebody. Mm. It's pretty amazing. It's Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, as a female who has worked in kids ministry, which mostly annoys me because it doesn't feel terribly disruptive to be a woman in children's ministry. Um, but I tend to be a disruptor. I think about all of the leaders that sit at the kids table, right? So it's a little bit of what you're, you know, we're, we're totally fine to sit in the tiny chairs. Like we don't pull our big chair up to the little table. And I used to bring a little chair to the big table just to remind the grown-ups in the room that there are other humans that are part of the kingdom that don't attend our staff meetings. But I just, there's there's this question around power over and installing this Christian prince, so to speak, that we see happening, certainly in North American churches. Um, and it's a tempting solution, especially like we need someone to rise up. We need someone to do something. And it's a solution that's been used by the church since Constantine. So like, I want to say, why do we keep doing this? But really a better question is why doesn't this work long-term? Like what, what is happening that this isn't working long-term? We keep, you know, and we see these little resistances with tiny chairs or women trying to insert themselves. I love what you say about uh, men invite women into power on their terms. I think that's a that's a really important statement and a really important thing to understand. And for me, it was like, oh, that's what that that's what that was, or that's how that happened. But why doesn't this work long term? Why does Christian nationalism ultimately push people away from God? Why doesn't it do what we want it to do? Um, okay, so I forget which chapter it is, but I, I go into um, a great detail. And there's a there's a whole historical argument here about 
the way worldly power works versus godly power. And I go into great detail how, frankly, sometimes world Christians must engage in worldly power. Um, and I, you know, the argument like Luther talked about the left hand, the right hand, uh, but but I won't go through all the history of it. But but when godly power only works when Christians are Christians and when Christians are doing it with Christians. And OK, so just take the most obvious. There are sometimes when I as a Christian man, am going to be in in the world trying to buy food or or sell a product, or get a job, or whatever, with person who is not a committed Christian to Jesus as Lord, sometimes worldly power will come into place. I use several examples, and I talk about how worldly power can preserve uh, a culture, can preserve people from harm. You know, I use I use the idea of the stoplight. I don't even know with automated cars whether we're even going to have stoplights soon. But anyways, we still do. So a stoplight uh, is there because when you have two people coming to the intersection, um, and it prevents people from crashing into each other. Um, and it orders things. So And it's power, but it's preservatory power. It keeps us from crashing into each other. But this preservatory power doesn't doesn't heal or restore so if we got two people at the intersection giving each other the finger or honking at each other you're too slow the light turned green blankety blank how come you're not moving and 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 we get mad at each other it's not going to heal uh the the brokenness and the unreconciled anger and sin and abuse between people but it's going to keep people from killing themselves and and so preservatory power, like when we hire a lawyer, Paul says, don't hire lawyers. You're going to judge the angels. In other words, you're going to have spiritual. You already got spiritual power of the spirit among you. Why are you going to the lawyers? But let's just say uh, uh, if I'm running a hospital as a Christian and um, uh, we have uh, 100 people suing the hospital for malpractice, and I, I think you know, and and all of them only want a hundred million dollars a piece. We're going to have to have worldly power, but is that going to do the healing work of God in the world for all the people who need healing? No, and so we need the church and we need Christians to open space for the healing power. Now, all that complicated answer to say: there's worldly power, and we still need it, and there's godly power, but what? often happens is because worldly power is coercive and it sometimes can get things done or look like gets things done. We want to do God's work using worldly power. And frankly, sometimes it does produce numbers, at least to the eyes, it looks good. But whenever we use worldly power, coercive power in the name of God, bad things happen because God is unlimited. God is holy. You can't question God. And now if you put that together with coercive power, you're saying, I'm doing this in God's name. You convince yourself you can do anything you want now in coercive power in the name of God. And I argue, and I go into great lengths, how this creates abuse, mayhem, disgust, and the church is very prone to it. Because after all, we're doing God's work and how nice it looks 
to use coercive power to do God's work, but it's always the wrong answer. And so this, this blurring of the two powers that I argue, it just, we're just going back and forth in the history of the church. And whenever we do it, we preserve, but we don't heal and, and bad things happen and we have to go back to Jesus all over again. <laughs> and I'm afraid this is the endless cycle that we're tragically in unless we can be faithful to Jesus Christ. I was reading the uh, Matthew 24 passage. Sorry to go on in this answer, but, you know, uh, uh, Jesus says, there's going to be rumors of wars and wars and earthquakes and and people are going to hate one another. And, and I'm saying this sounds like what's going on. And he says, but those who endure, those who will be faithful to my way in the end will be saved. Everything else will get gobbled up in the abuse and the pain and the brokenness and the violence of the world. We need to be different. We need to be Jesus. So help us understand, David, because like you're, you're giving us this concept of a redefinition of power in light of Jesus. And I'm really curious, like how do church leaders learn to reevaluate their measures of success? Like you're talking about, like we use power as the church. We're addicted to it. It gets results. And we like results. My Results with a quotation mark, right. my friend. Results with a quotation mark. <laughs> right? But like, if I'm accountable to an elder team or a board, and they're looking at like buildings and budgets and butts in the seats, like there's a bit of a motivation to go get some dang results. And like, how do we, how do we retool what is success? Um, because if, if success is, if power is cross-shaped, if it's cruciformed like Jesus, it might look like losing. It might look like everybody abandoning us because we didn't exercise power over. So help us. How do we how do we understand what is success in light of a redefinition of power? Well, you know, you, you brought in the success word here. And yeah. um all right, so so I'm I'm not totally comfortable with getting rid of success, uh, depending on what it might mean. Uh, uh, I, I think we ought to see the world changed. I think we ought to see injustices broken and healed and restored. I think we ought to see people come to Christ. I think we ought to see. But um, the ways we have been doing it <clears throat> when we've done it under worldly power are just consolidating works or preservatory works. You know, not all preservatory works are bad like like let's say when this rich church which i won't mention about 10 miles from here goes into the poorest town part of chicago and hands out food and so forth mm -hmm. it's not all bad people are being relieved of immediate suffering that's what i call preservatory they're they're being preserved for another day but god wants so much more god wants us to go be present in lawndale he wants us to go be among people. He wants us <clears throat> to, uh, out of relationality, give and receive. And justice is restored. He wants us to do what I called in the book Parasite, speak truth in love to power, worldly power, uh, so that it can be. Uh, so all of this is like the, I, I think I gave uh, at the end, 20 pages of suggestions on how we can lead churches 
differently in relation to justice, discipleship, evangelism, the way we gather in the world. And, and uh, it's all about uh, not just saying all worldly power is evil, bad, because there will be some times when we got to use it. And, and frankly, it's those people that want to point to Fitch. You're impractical. <coughs> you just don't don't know how to live in the world. You got to use those coercive means. Okay. Okay. I understand. Sometimes you're going to need stoplights, especially if I'm driving, but God wants to heal the relationships at the intersection uh, of life and, and transform the world. And for that, it's going to take our presence. All right. So I, I know I, I still up 30,000 feet in my answer to your question, Paul, but there are some real, uh, ways that we can go about leadership, but it's going to take imagination, folks, because we've been under the spell of Christendom for a long time, hmm. especially those in the United States, especially, well, I'm not going to say it. I was going to say especially old white guys like me, but. Uh, well, you I'm had me saying. at imagination. So. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we've been under the spell. So um, when I heard you talk about, you know, taking food uh, to displaced or marginalized people in the city, it reminds me of a moment where I was a great hero of a story of my own making. I was early into ministry and organized a missions trip uh, to a squatter community behind the slums, behind a dump in Manila, Philippines. And we organized this whole family mission trip. And of course, we are the heroes of our own story. And what we thought we were bringing bringing to these uh, incredible humans was the gospel, because somehow our assumption, our working assumption was that if you lived in a squatter community behind the slums, behind the dump in Manila, Philippines, you didn't have Jesus. And what I learned was they needed water, food, um, access to education, and I needed Jesus. Um, they, Jesus had been in Manila a lot longer than I had and had been meeting with these people for a really long time. And so I wonder, like looking at that own like vulnerable moment of uh, what have I done? What have I, what story have I told my children? What story have I been complicit in? How does the church continue to be complicit in the, um, it, management and maintenance of this power over how, where do we see complicity and maybe more so how do we assess for complicit behavior so that we can begin to shift begin uh to move through discipleship the people we love and serve with how do we bring this shift away from complicit behavior in power over oh that's a <clears throat> Um, the word assessment, how do we assess? Uh, I, I was on a podcast with Al Tizan, and he's written this book on uh, class, bringing, bringing Jesus to the classes. I can't remember the title of it. I'm terrible now with titles, but he has some great assessments in that book uh, on how to help us understand how we see and understand classism and see economics in terms of class. I wish I had that kind of an assessment tool for how can we see ourselves uh, complicit with worldly power. Um, I should have should have done that. I think I will do that. I think I will 
provide a PDF assessment tool. And I don't know how good it will be. But uh, in one section of the book, I talk about violence. And I talk about whenever violence breaks out, it is a sign that worldly power is being used and it's gone off the rails. And usually when it goes off the rails, it's because we have said we're doing this in the name of God. God has given me this power. God has given me this uh, position of authority, and I must now use it for him. And we it goes off the rails because of the, of, of the ostentatiousness of saying, I am doing this in the in the uh, auspices of God, and uh, I think that's one tell. That's one assessment. And, and now we need a better one because we don't want to have to wait till violence breaks out. We don't want to wait until we see abuse uh, behavior. Um, I have been in a situation at my own seminary. By the way, we came out with a wonderful statement of lament. Uh, and our board, uh, the new board and our new president at Northern Seminary has just done a great job handling some issues of abuse of worldly powers, the way I would say it. But I think it could have been stopped a lot earlier. If uh, I made several attempts, you know, Jesus, Jesus says, go to the person who sins against you. It always starts with small sins. Go to the person who sins against you. Well, that's kind of hard for a person who's being abused to go to his or her abuser and say, you have sinned against me. Okay, bring somebody else with you. And and so I was asked to come along with to the person who was the abuser several times. And if that doesn't work, he says, bring the whole church. We have all these mechanisms which kind of def defeat the early, you know, uh, tell that that abuse of worldly power in the name of God is going on. But I think that's key. Can we, in the smallest manifestation of it, go to somebody and discern with that somebody uh, that you are an abuser of power? By the way, often that abuser will say, no way, I'm God. And at that point, if we really want to be faithful to Matthew 18, we leave and we say, you are not in this community. You are not a Christian if you cannot submit to the power and the presence of Jesus among us. I think that's the best I got right now as a tool of assessment, but I'm going to work on it. I'm going to think more about it. Thank you for reflecting on that. Like, I, I think you're naming the struggle here that like we so often don't know how to enter these conversations of power dynamics. It's, it's, tough and i appreciate what i hear you saying consistently is this call to be with like even as i was reflecting on christy's story about like she goes to the landfill and discovers that it's her that needs jesus it makes me think of like like stanley harwas he once said that the poor are not a problem to be solved but a people to be with and like i just hear you say keep going with 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 like and I guess that's also the power under. I'm curious about how you might approach another heated discussion. Every church leader that I talk to has some relationship to this conversation. And it's the sense of how we're talking about LGBTQ issues in the church, how we're having this discussion with our brothers and sisters. Um, we live in a very contentious and polarized time. Um, of discussion 
about what it means to be the church and how we're actually using power in these conversations. And so I'm curious, like, how might a Jesus-shaped view of power help us in conversations about LGBT, LGBTQ plus people? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's uh, it's a mo- it's a key moment. It's a it's how do I don't want to say it's it's a major major time and place and moment for the church to look at this issue of power um, and to allow space for the work of the Holy Spirit to work. Um, I I hesitate to get too thick into the weeds here because seriously, this is a conversation which deserves uh, I'm tempted to say three hours, but. That would just be the beginning. There are so many complexities here that I, I, I don't want to step too much into it and not being able to be, I fear I'll be misunderstood. But um, let me just say a few things. One of the things Andrew Marin's great study of LGBTQ people, and this was now 2016, so that's what, seven years ago. But it was uh, 3,000 surveys, I think almost 1,800 samples, University of Chicago overseen, the biggest study ever done. And a few things uh, became clear out of this study. And I urge, it's, the book's called Us Versus Us, uh, Nav Press, 2016, Andrew Marin. You can read all the stats for yourself. But uh, a couple of things became apparent. The majority of LGBTQ people come from a conservative Christian church. Uh, I think the actual stats are 86% of all LGBTQ people come from a church and something like 90% of those come from a conservative church. It's astounding. So that is an indictment of the, of the, of the cultural frame of sexuality as presented by the conservative Protestant church. Okay. We need to take a look at the frame. I believe that sexuality and gender are partially, if not majority, framed, shaped, derived from cultural frames. And evidently, the evangelical frame has been a miserable failure. Okay, so just, so for me, just affirming or not affirming is not really doing anything. Um, It's actually putting a Band-Aid over a huge problem. Um, And then secondly, I want to say our quickest maneuver as people who come from Christendom frameworks of power, which are blurred with worldly power, is to use power, worldly power, to impose a solution which cuts off all conversation and dialogue. So the affirming or the not affirming solution for me is a failure on those. Instead, and by the way, this comes from Andrew Marin's study, too, and another study I just read uh, from, uh, can't remember the name of the book, but it's just published like six months ago. The majority of LGBTQ peoples among us, their biggest complaint was not theological. It was that I was never listened to, and I was treated as an object of disgust. Okay, All all this to say, power moves from top down are not going to solve this problem. Instead, we must make space 
to be heard, listened to, and allow the spirit to work among us. I've got a few suggestions in the book, uh, but that's about a summary and a very, very short summary of kind of my observations on this on the situation. Man, David, it's like you're asking us to trust in Jesus. <laughs> you're asking us like to like give up not the, those anxiousness uh, and fears in these conversations. Like, there's so much that I love about what you're you're saying in that. Over to you, Christy. Well, I uh, had the chance to go to a learning intensive with Dr. Mark Truman. Nope. Uh, Mark Yarhouse, Dr. Truman was also there, but Dr. Mark Yarhouse, who's in the Chicago area, I believe he's at Wheaton. Anyway, he said two things about um, working, studying with, uh, and clinical cl clinical work with uh, the LGBTQ plus kids, youth, and families uh, that I would just add to support what you're saying. He said two things are common in 25 years of study. One is that when a queer kid, uh, for generic use of the term and his words, um, when a queer kid is asked about family, he talks about the queer community as family, but not once in 25 years has he heard the church referred to as family. I think that's really important when we're talking about power. Like if power is experienced, it probably, you know, unless you're coming from a patriarchal or hierarchical framework of family, that's really important to pay attention to. The other thing he said is when a kid comes out of the closet, the family is usually shoved into it. And so there's that power dynamic as, as well that I would just, uh, yeah. those two things uh, stuck with me in a painful way uh, when I was learning with him. But I wonder, in light of this conversation and in light of this uh, group of Jesus followers, what are you excited about um, uh, for Jesus Collective, like for this group, this this framework that Jesus Collective sits with and holds space for? What are you excited about and what role do you see it playing and why might it be needed in this moment, this cultural moment, this theological moment in the Western church? Well, um, where do I start on this one? Uh, folks, I think we're in, uh, uh, I, I just don't know. I, I, uh, I was looking at something in in uh, the church. Uh, I was looking at some civil rights documentaries last night uh, for with with my wife and uh that that time during the 60s was an extremely extremely difficult disruptive time in the history of the church but i, I look at what we're going through today is that times 100 i i actually think we're just we are in a incredibly divisive uh angry vitriolic we just hurl insults at people who we disagree with we don't have conversations. And most of all, Jesus has become, um, I don't know, a symbol or a principle that we extract and use for our own purposes. Now I'm talking about the evangelical right that wants to see power used in government to shape culture in their particular understanding of morality. And on the, the post-evangelical, ex-evangelical, progressive evangelical, just plain Protestant mainline uh, left. Uh, and we don't have a space to actually enter into and, and be present to the actual living, risen, present Christ in our midst. Um, 
I don't know if that sounds like hocus pocus to anybody else. I don't even know if it sounds like sacramental to anybody else. But, but, but Jesus is the centering force out of which by our presence, with his presence, he's going to heal the world. And I just don't see that space being I think we're losing hope that we can have that space in the various right or left-wing versions of the church. And so we got to have a place to get together and figure this out, how to be a Jesus-centered church in the midst. And that does not mean we do not take positions of truth in the midst of injustice. It doesn't mean we become this third way that is a compromise. Absolutely not. Jesus is not a compromise. He is a disruptor, but he ha- you have to be present amidst and not get ideologized by what's going on in our American and to some extent our Canadian cultures. And this is why I'm, I mean, I've called up John Han a couple of times in the last year and said, come on, man, we got to get this, this, we got to put some money. We got money is power, worldly power, by the way. You do need a little bit of that. Okay. <clears throat> we got to, we got to make space for Jesus. And I think Jesus Collective is on the right track. Mm. I'm on the theology circle, by the way. And uh, I'm committed to Jesus Collective. Thank you so much, David, uh, for just reflecting and, and sharing your insights. Speaking of calling up John Hand. We're going to do that right now because John <laughs> Hand has been in the chat just faithfully engaging the people. Fanning the flames. Fanning the flames in the chat. Fanning the flames. Helping us understand, seeking clarity. Like, John, you're, you're such a gift. And here you are, the voice of the people to, <laughs> to bring further questions to our prestigious guest, David Fitch. Just, just to know this is a... This is not my voice. I've divested the power of my voice so that I might speak the words of the people. There you go. Are you happy, Dave? Okay. Sounds pretty good. Um, there is, there's questions. There's lots of practical questions. So it was good to hear that you said in the back of your book, uh, you offer a lot of suggestions. So I would recommend all of us go read that. Um, I have one more kind of practical question, but first I want to address what Ryan said. Uh, somebody uh, in the chat, somebody who comes from a <clears throat> like more of a, a flat oriented power skeptical culture, church culture, like a Mennonite or an Anabaptist um, or churches that have experienced a lot of church hurt. We're seeing a move to flatten, you know, hierarchies structurally. And I think it's awesome. The thing that does happen anecdotally and experientially when that happens uh, is that if we say no one's a leader, then those who are often the most, say, ideological and maybe unhealthy, they will use, they will, they will say, I have no positional power. I'm just speaking, you know, for the people, but then we'll use power mechanisms to try to advance their cause, whatever it is, right or left that they see as necessary. And then there's no power mechanism to hold them accountable. So how do you address that in those kind of dynamics where there's, we, we have shared power, but there's unofficial power brokers 
who are using their their unofficial power in toxic ways. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, this is a very dense topic too. Uh, uh, I'll just say, and, and I forget where I've written about it, but I'm not, I'm not in favor of, of uh, getting rid of leadership. Uh, I, I mean, the, the word leaders kind of got polluted by business and other sociological factors, but the church needs leadership. The church needs authority. Um, but the question is, like, how? And I think in the end of 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul says, first apostles, then prophets, then evangelists, and then the rest of the gifts. And he, likewise, in Ephesians 4, he gives the fivefold gift to equip the rest of the church for ministry. He's giving not a hierarchy, but a chronology of the way the gifts mm. work. And so, uh, often when we plant churches, when we, when me, and I'm part of church planting networks, we plant churches, there's got to be an apostle out there. There's got to be someone with the gift to go into a strange place and and get a vision for the place and call people together and say, we are the kingdom. Uh, but if it's just the apostle, and often the apostle is the first leader, like in 1 Corinthians, the end of 1 Corinthians 12, but you got to have teachers and you got to have evangelists and you got to have pastors. And, you, <clears throat> um, and I believe in the gift of divine healing when you those two. Uh, but uh, all, all that to say, uh, we need to have a posture of mutuality. Tim Gombus wrote a book on the Apostle Paul and power. I think it was two years ago. It's been written over and over again. Paul never used his apostolic power over someone. He called his workers co-workers. He could have said, I could come here and order you to pay me a salary, but he went and he got a job as a tent maker in order to be with them and not presume on them. Over and over again, read the whole book by Tim Gombas and, and it's it's out there in other places. So what about opposing He never Peter? did it over. What about what about using the pers the force of personality to oppose Peter? What is that? I am not prepared at this time, folks. I would have to look a little closer. Don't at tell me I stumped Dave Fitch. Don't even. <laughs> I don't accept that. But but let me let me just say uh, uh, I think you might be inserting your interpretation on the episode between Paul and Peter. But they did have okay. they did have their conflicts, folks, and he had his conflicts with Barnabas, you know, Mark, and other people yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but and, and by the way, just because we get rid of worldly power does not mean we're not going to have conflicts. I actually think we're going to have more conflicts. And I think those conflicts are good because that's the space out of which we discern mutually where God is taking us, not just have one hierarchical leader impose his or her solution to a problem and tell us which way to go. I'm going to inject in here because I think that nails it that david like again i know you love stanley harawas so let's bring him in here but his whole point is a church that's committed to peacemaking of divesting itself from the means of control should experience more conflict of course less. because all of a sudden the the boundaries of we're holding people with our uh, coerciveness once they're removed you actually have to talk to each other you actually have to fight and do good conflict yeah, we got to get used to conflict. Uh, you know, uh, th those of us who are married probably already are used to conflict, or at least you should be. Uh, mm -hmm. But we in the church need to be <laughs> used to conflict in the church. 
and mutually working these things out. In the book, I talk about uh, the Igthus meeting. It seems good to uh, the Holy Spirit and to us. Uh, how we how we arrive at a consensus. Okay, I'm sorry. I know there's a lot of Mennonites in the group that are kind of soured on, oh, not please. He's not going to give us this idealistic view of consensus making, blah, 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 blah. I actually think I've seen people healed in an Igthus meeting. I've seen them. They were so stressed out, so conflicted, so bent out of shape over a particular conflict. And when they saw the Holy Spirit working in the conflict, their migraines went away. I actually, I'm telling you the truth. And so all this to say, yeah, we just got to get used to conflicts and ways of entering into them. I admit there's a lot of worldly power out there that wants to come in and shove its way around and tell us what to do. We, we need a nice say not so among us, okay? And make space for the work of the Holy Spirit to do things. By the way, we did that by just setting out the terms of what an Igthus meeting is, how it works, A, B, C, D, and E, and giving everybody a voice to talk, and and it worked. And, and we allowed the Holy Spirit to work. So anyways, yeah, we just need to be okay with conflict. Yeah, I think you're pushing on a bit of a bruise in the church, at least a bruise that I experience in talking about leadership. I think that we have this conflation of leadership and power, and I see leadership throw up, show up, throw up, show up in three different <laughs> ways <laughs> in the church. There's the personality of leadership or where leadership is assumed or put on someone because of their personality. There's the skill, which there's, I mean, are, do we have enough books on leadership yet? I don't know. I don't think and so. Not yet. The, no. You no. should write, write one. You should write one. I'm working yeah. on it. I've, I've yeah. got the right one coming out next. Um, <laughs> and then there's also the gift of leadership that I don't think we talk about enough. Like we don't distinguish enough. And so that leads me to this question and what you're talking about is, do we trust the Holy Spirit in each other enough? Or do we just think the Holy Spirit's talking to me because I'm the leader? Like, yeah. do we actually trust the Holy Spirit to lead us in this place of mutual submission? Do we even understand what mutual submission means? And how do you, so, you know, I want to represent the practically minded who actually, like all of us have a job to do, but the practically minded leader who has to go lead a church and they have employees. And they have leadership structures. And so I hear everything you're saying, Christy, about mutual submission. And then there's like U.S. employment law, right? Then there's HR. Then there's like direct reports. Then there's a job to do. And then there's payment for services rendered and time given. So how does this power under and with, how does it apply to people who have to lead organizations. Are you asking me that question? Uh, I am. Hannon? I'm asking us <laughs> and I'm asking He's you. not asking me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess I'm asking you. I, uh, okay. So this is, this is navigating life uh, in the church versus in the world. And I will tell you, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be talking about this, uh, but uh, I'm going to talk about it in generic terms. Our seminary has been through a lot in conflict the last year. Yes. Uh, and uh, as soon as someone said, we're going to sue you, then the lawyers among us said, we've got to protect ourselves and we got to sue you. 
And all of a sudden, all discernment of the Holy Spirit went out. The, the Holy Spirit didn't leave. He was kicked out. And now it's all about worldly power. And it was mind-numbingly disastrous. Um, all this to say, um, there will be times when Fitch is going to have to use a lawyer when someone outside the faith sues me for whatever reason. But that doesn't mean I have to give up immediately. I can go to this person, mutually submit and, and say, I believe you sinned against me, blah, 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 blah. Or have I sinned against you, blah, 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 blah. Can we hear each other out over a cup of coffee at Westmont Restaurant at 6 a.m. in the morning? Now, granted, it may not work, but I, but before we go to the lawyer, can we take step A before and make the lawyer step B? <laughs> okay, so all this to say, it's kind of like a principle with me. Even when I'm out in the world, and, and some people know in my, thir uh, my 20s and early 30s, I worked in financial services. Even then, can I operate under the auspices of the Lordship of Christ and assume he's at work all around the world and invite people into it who even aren't Christians? But then there will be times, and there will be plenty of times, when they say, screw you, I'm not interested. I'm interested yeah. in imposing my will on you. And at that point we have to go to the lesser option of preservatory function of worldly power. But this is the discernment. I actually have a whole chapter on this. Let me see if I can find which chapter it is. Uh, oh, well, I, I actually have a chapter, a section of it under the chapter on Christian nationalism. And Christian nationalism, of course, is the ultimate example of Christians using the power, worldly power of government to impose Christian cultural solutions and morality on people who don't believe in Jesus. I'm saying that's bad, but there are all sorts of lesser ways we, we try to do that. And can we instead see Jesus as option A and only go to option B as a last resort? I don't when you know say discernment, I, I, I think it helps. I think... You know, probably there's no one-size-fits-all answer here. This is probably, to your point about in community, these are probably annoyingly difficult questions we should be asking each other in community as to what does this look like when we do have employees that we're leading? How do we lead without utilizing coercive worldly power? But I'm, I'm curious in your book where you talk about discernment because you've, you've brought that term up quite a few times. Can you nutshell that for us? What does that mean? Because you've said discernment is kind of the way forward, even, even from like the LGBTQ conversations, debate versus discernment. So wh what does that mean? Uh, discernment. Uh, we, dis we discern by first listening to one another. We don't, we don't assume or presume. Uh, we discern. And by discerning, we invite the Holy Spirit in. Uh, I want to make this point because it's a major point for me. And by the way, I learned it all from Stanley Hauerwas. The, uh, that the power, what, what we've done in our culture with the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit is we've made the, the Holy Spirit only a power at work in us, internally to us. Personal piety, internal Holy Spirit work. She only works inside of us. 
Okay, I'm trying to say the Holy Spirit is a power and a presence in social situations. And so when we discern, we come together out of a conflict or out of an issue or a question, and we come together and we assume now, if we are both Christians, that Jesus is at work here among us and between us. There is an incredible interrelationality made possible uh, by the presence of Jesus among us. And that's the world we're called in. That's where he will restore, renew, transform, heal. That's the what what the transformation of the of that the world is looking for. And so discern is quite a bit different than um what was the other option, John, again? Debate. 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 Oh. Think about how we debate. I don't need to go into it, but I'm going to win this argument. I'm going to win this debate. I'm going to make my points. You're going to make yours, and I'm going to prove that I'm a smarter person than you are. This is just totally contrary to the way the power, and I'm talking real power. You know, Ephesians 1 says, I pray you will know the greatness of the power at work among you. Okay, because why? Because we need an imagination for it because we're so full of worldly power. And this is where the church shall be renewed. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm kind of going off on a rant right now, but you think of the first hundred years of the church, and you read The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider, and you see patiently they were among, and God changed the world. You look at the civil rights movement, same thing. You look at some of the awakenings, the way it worked. All of it happened not by some guy getting into a pulpit, inviting 100,000 into a stadium, and and showing a good movie, and and having an altar call, although I'm I'm not totally against it. It happened by people being among and and praying and inviting the presence of God to work among them in all things. And right now we have racism, we have uh, sexuality, we got gender, we got economics, we've got <clears throat> really bad politics, all this stuff going on. These are all opportunities to make space for the power and the presence of Jesus to start a new awakening among us. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. You know, that's a um, shameless plug. The, the name of Unite this in, in April in St. Paul, Minnesota, our, our large group global gathering, a church renewed by Jesus will surprise the world. A church renewed by Jesus will surprise the world. I and love I, it. I, I think what you're scratching at, Dave, is it sounds surprising. It sounds like it's making what's seemingly impossible possible. It's showing how Jesus makes the impossible possible, which is possible. It's possible, right? Yes, I like it, John. I, I and I like that that phrase. I, that's the first I'd heard of it, and I, I love it. Uh, but you know, it's going to take some time and some cultivation. Yeah, maybe we have to be together to discern it, right? Like Can we got to figure you? this out. Uh, uh, I know this is on tape or being whatever, but <laughs> we I'm don't do share. tapes anymore, by the way. I know, I know, I know, I know. We stopped. I don't even know who the tape is. I'm a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a wonderful church. It's a long story how I got there and how Peace of Christ landed at Renew Church and everything. It's got a very attractional vibe going on here. And, and I've been assigned to make some spaces for the work of the Holy Spirit table fellowships. I'm telling you, I'm like three months into it, and and we're 
we're just meeting around a table and we're seeing we, we've seen two people get healed we've seen we've seen this one woman who was caught in a, a long depression say this is what i've been looking for i want to be known and i want to know people okay and just things are happening in people's lives okay but but at the end of uh saturday's meeting some people just said you know people just are so attracted to going to the service and listening to the preacher and we have great music and, and they don't get what's possible around this table. It's going to be hard to get other people to see this. Okay. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Everybody's so busy and so amped up on all the results and the big uh boom bots of the world that they can't see. Oh man, people can get, you just make space for Jesus. You'll get healed. You'll see justice restored in places you could not have imagined. You will see things like, like uh, you've been lonely and depression for 20 years and, and Jesus is calling you out of it. So, I don't know. That's where we're at. And I hope that's what Jesus Collective can lead us into uh, for United States and Canada, because we badly need it. Hmm. This has been a rich conversation. I've just enjoyed hanging out with all of you today. And uh, so we're going to head towards the the sort of the exit of our formal conversation. And I just want to thank thank you, David. For, for spending time to be with us, of moving towards us, of sharing. Uh, we, we share our appreciation for you and your teaching gift. Uh, so in just a moment, we're, we're going to head Hey, Paul, to... can I just say one more thing? Yeah, go for it. Okay, here, here's the book, Reckoning with Power. I love it. I love and I, it. I think I got like eight or nine spaces left on the launch team, which means if you have any kind of, um, uh, what do you call it, social media presence... All you have to do is put a picture of the book when it arrives at your residence on your Facebook account or whatever account, and, and you have to give one review. If you're interested in being on that launch team, email me at fitchest, F-I-T-C-H-E-S-T, at gmail.com. Put launch team in the uh, heading, and I'll try to get you on. love to have a few more of you on. Oh, and if you're Canadian... I got too many Canadians. I apologize, but Brazos Press won't send any more books to Canadians. I'm sorry. It costs like five times the amount. Uh, it's all your fault, John Hine. Get that Canadian Postal Service in, in order. <laughs> so, reforming the Canadian Postal Service. That's the mission of Jesus Collective, it seems. <laughs> it's, that's definitely one of our top 10 goals. Uh, <laughs> Where else could we find you, David, online? Are you on, you're on uh, Facebook? Fa or? Facebook is my main uh, Fitchest. I would have guessed that. Yep. Is, is Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Fitchest. Uh, I have a Substack. Look me up at uh, David Fitch Substack or whatever it is. I'd love to have you join me. Great. John, before we kind of uh, turn off the, the, the tape, so to speak, I'll look <laughs> that up later. Because uh, <laughs> we, we tape. Because we tape. Of course, of course. Uh, could you give us a few announcements? Give us some uh, kind of update pieces around Jesus Collective. What's going on? What's happening? I know there's a few things coming up, including an OLC and Unite yeah. and those sorts of things. Give us a little snapshot, and then we'll wave goodbye to everyone. We'll turn off the tape, and then we'll stick around. And uh, David, you're welcome to stick around too, and we could just chat and reflect on this this very engaging session on power. Yeah. Um, do you, so this is a, this we in January, we have what's called an online learning collective. And in fact, Christy will be with us for our 
one of the weeks in our online learning collective, uh, we were recognizing that leaders are struggling in how, uh, how to one be in leadership and deepen their discipleship to Jesus, like a, like an, a deep Jesus centered commitment so that it's really a parable of this conversation. We believe certain things about Jesus, but then the, the penny doesn't drop into certain aspects of our leadership because we get, you know, compartmentalized. And so we see, we have a vision for helping leaders decompartmentalize to get Jesus into every aspect of their leadership and, and living it out. And, and so we're forming a six week long community to help each other get Jesus into every fiber of their leadership, which means maybe every fiber of their being. And specifically, we look at how do we use our power to lead well in our polarized times. So it's about the leader's own discipleship. It's about giving them tools to navigate with this power under, power with orientation in places of conflict and tension. And it's about forming a, a supportive community where we're learning from each other from diverse backgrounds for six weeks. And we would love to have you join us as a part of that. Um, you can go to our events page on jesuscollective.com events and learn more about this online learning collective that's launching in late January. And then we're going to convene a global gathering in April 24 to 26, where we're going to have conversations about the work that Jesus wants to do among us and how he wants to dis displace worldly power and replace control and worldly power with spiritual power. And in this moment of pain and anxiety, how Jesus wants to replace the anxiety of our day that we're all absorbing in our bodies with his peace and how he wants to replace the cynicism that's like crystallizing in our imaginations with his thick presence among us and how Jesus wants to displace polarization and replace it with his supernatural unity. Mm -hmm. And if the church would align together with Jesus, we believe that we could surprise the world if he, as we invite him to renew us in these ways. So that's the theme of Unite. We would love to have you join us. It's going to be rich. And really, the best part of it is this being a discerning community together and saying, no, we're going to resist these forces that are ripping us apart in our day. And we're going to attach ourselves more deeply to Jesus as a community. So um, that is also on our website. You can go to JesusCollective.com and look at our events and learn more. So good. Looking forward to that. And thank you everyone for pulling up a chair at the podcast table to listen in. We wish you well. And here's to keeping Jesus at the center. God is at work raising up a movement of churches, ministries, and disciples all around the world that are passionate about advancing a more united and hopeful Jesus-centered Jesus-looking kingdom. If you're a listener today, I'm sure you can see and feel that. So, can I ask you today if you'd help us amplify this Jesus-centered movement? 
Can you share the podcast, blog, and social media channels? We are on a mission to equip a centered set vision of a church renewed by Jesus by investing in the renewal of its leaders. Would you consider making a financial investment in Jesus Collective today? Is anything stopping you? If not, go to JesusCollective.com. Your investment means we can advance and amplify this Jesus-centered movement, investing in pastors and Christian leaders globally. Hey, and don't forget to make sure to check out our website for upcoming events. We've got a ton of great things happening.